All right, so as I get started today, I want to ask you to do something that will help us kind of frame the discussion for this afternoon. Here's my request. Think back over the course of your life, so your childhood, school years, sports teams, family situation. Think back over your life and picture the people who have made you who you are today. Who has had the biggest influence on your life? Could be parents, grandparents, teachers, siblings, friends, pastors, relatives. Who has shaped you into the person you are? So let's take 30 seconds or so to try to narrow it down to the two or three or five people who've had the most influence in molding you into who you are at this moment of your life. All right, is anybody brave enough to share some of your answers? Who has, who has shaped you, molded you? Anyone? I see that hand. I'd have to say, when I started growing up, I started in Boy Scouts when I was seven years old. And I would have to say the people that shaped me most was three or four of my Eagle Scout friends that were the 18-year-olds when I was seven years old. And they were the coolest guys in the world. And they knew everything, and they just really persuaded me to be the best that I could growing up. Cool. They're heroes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not just, you know, the celebrities that you're lucky to get an autograph that you can actually have a conversation with them and actually, like, get advice from them, and they actually encourage you rather than just say hi and stuff. They're actually there to help you along the way. Very cool. Anybody else? Ian. All right, yeah, I was waiting for somebody to say Christopher. He rubbed off on Any others? Anybody care to add? Yeah, Ryan. Any others? Yeah. I was thinking about like times where I spent like a ton of time with one person or like a specific group. So like obviously when I, when I was younger and my parents split up, I was with my mom a lot. So I was like my mom's mini me. And then <laughs> um, I lived with my dad after I graduated high school for two years. And then I was so much like my dad. Like I was acting just like him. And then I was on a college swim team and we were all the same. Like we just conformed to each other. <laughs> And then now I'm married, and my husband um, is actually the person that introduced me to Christ, and I, like, model after him a lot. So just all of those time frames of who I spend time with. Awesome. Yeah, all these really fit in with, with where we're headed today. Uh, one, one person for me, um, after I graduated from Northern with my bachelor's degree in a previous century, so um, I worked for several years as a magazine editor and newspaper reporter. And I have to say that just about every time I sat down to write an article or edit an article, 
I had one person in mind, and his name is Gerald Waite. So Doc Waite was an English professor at Northern for about 33 years. He was the only journalism professor at the university for most of that time. I was an English major and journalism minor, so I took, uh, I took all the journalism classes I could, and so, of course, I had, I had him. And he was, he was a great professor, and he had such an influence on my writing and editing that, um, that his face was the one I pictured whenever I started a new piece. And you know, his voice was the one in my head, so I always wondered, what would Doc think of this lead that I'm writing? What would Doc think of this structure? How, you know, what would he think of this story? So in short, when it came to my practice of writing, I was a disciple of Dr. Gerald Waite, and I still am. You might, might not realize this. You might not think about this often, if ever, but each one of us here today is a disciple of someone else. Each one of us is a disciple of someone else. Each one of us learns, has learned how to live life by watching someone else live life, right? This is what discipleship is. Uh, To be a disciple, very simply, is to be a learner or student or apprentice of someone else or a group of people. And we individually are often disciples of many different individuals in different areas of our life. Does that make sense? So when it comes to journalism and writing, as I said, I'm a disciple of Doc Waite, who taught me in college. When it comes to being a campus minister, I'm a disciple of Scott Martin, the national director of Chi Alpha, who taught me when we worked together in Kyrgyzstan. When it comes to parenting, I'm a disciple not only of my own parents, but also of Nikki, who has taught me as we've learned how to parent together. So we're all disciples of someone. We've all been shaped and molded and formed by others. We've been discipled by the people around us. We've been discipled by the music we listen to. We've been discipled by the TV shows we watch, by the books we read. So this leads to a question. Whose disciple are you? Whose disciple are you? Uh, Dallas Willard was a philosopher and uh, a follower of Jesus he was an author, highly regarded uh, professor of philosophy at USC. He was a department head uh, at one point. And in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, which I highly recommend, Willard writes, it is one of the major transitions of life to recognize who has taught us, mastered us, and then to evaluate the results in us of their teaching. This is a harrowing task, and sometimes we just can't face it. But it can also open the door to choose other masters, possibly better masters, and one master above all. He's talking, of course, about being a disciple of Jesus, the one master above all. And I would guess that when most of us think of the word disciple or think of disciples or being a disciple, our mind, especially if we've grown up in the church, our mind goes to the New Testament, the followers of Jesus who... uh, are written about in the New Testament. That's probably the most common use of the word disciple in our current vocabulary. When we hear someone say disciple, many of us tend to think of Peter and James and John and Thomas and even Judas, uh, those in in the Gospels. And no, that's where our mind goes. But I'd like to change that, especially among our group, especially among NMU Chi Alpha. So for the rest of this semester, 
we'll be talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, within, within Chi Alpha, we see ourselves as a community of worship, a community of prayer, a community of discipleship, a community of fellowship, a community of mission. And some of those terms need to be defined. So what do we mean when we say we're a community of discipleship? What, what is a disciple? Is this something we want to do? And if so, how do we go about doing it? So I, I want us to get to a point in our lives where when we hear the word disciple, we automatically think of ourselves in relation to Jesus and not necessarily to think of Peter and James and John and Thomas and Matthew. I, I want us to get to a point where we identify as students of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus. So a, a disciple isn't just some person who followed Jesus around Palestine 2,000 years ago. Disciples exist today, and Jesus today is inviting us to follow him, to be with him, to learn from him, to be his apprentice, to be his disciple. So for the rest of the semester, this is the, the territory that I want to cover. And as we go along, we'll see that being a true disciple of Jesus is different from being a quote-unquote Christian in the way that many people understand that term. And we'll come back to that even, even today a little bit. So, so let's look to the Bible. This is God's word to us. It's his message to us, his invitation to us. I want to look at the Gospel of Mark. Mark is one of the, uh, the four mini-biographies of Jesus. Um, Mark was a, a follower of Jesus. He wasn't in the in the, the group of 12, when we think of the, the inner circle, the 12 apostles, he wasn't, he wasn't in that circle, but just right, right beyond that, he was a, um, a close associate of the apostle Peter. So he, he saw a lot of these things that he, uh, that he writes about. What I want to look at in Mark today is two cases where Jesus was calling his first disciples, because there's some lessons here that I think we can apply if we're considering becoming disciples of Jesus and more than, some, more than just a so-called Christian. So the first one is in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who we also know as Peter. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat, repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. So we have two sets of brothers here. First, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. Jesus sees them, calls to them, invites them to follow him. And Mark tells us that they respond at once. And there are, there are other translations where it just says immediately. They immediately got up and followed him. The second section in Mark that I want to look at is the next chapter, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi, who's also known as Matthew, got up and followed him. So again, just like the earlier, the earlier case, 
uh, Levi got up immediately, at once. So some cultural background here. Around the time of Jesus, in, uh, in this part of the world, within Judaism, there were teachers who were known as rabbis or you know, master teachers. Uh, and these men, it was always men in their culture, dedicated themselves to teaching scripture and the Jewish law and, and training younger men to carry on their teachings. And this idea of a teacher investing great amounts of time and effort into a group of students was part of the Jewish culture at the time. This rabbi would be surrounded by students who would learn from him, learn how to live life. They're disciples, in other words. So a rabbi would have disciples. And there were certain benchmarks along the way um, in the life of Jewish boys who were interested in a religious life. So I think we have some hockey fans here. I know we have some hockey fans here and former players. So I think a hockey analogy will be useful here. And I think I've shared this in the past. So currently in the United States and Canada, there are about 1 million youth hockey players. So uh, about 350,000 any given year in the States and more than 600,000 in Canada. So a million youth hockey players. And the ultimate goal of these players, or their parents at least, if they're, they're that kind of parent, the ultimate goal is for them to make it to the National Hockey League, the best hockey league in the world. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Uh, and we're going to have to do some math here. So currently, the NHL has 31 teams. Uh, until next fall, when the Seattle Kraken will join the league, like with, with the best name in the NHL, just automatically. The, the Kraken will... The, and logo. Yeah, the logo. Yeah, I, I should have thought it to put up a logo. So yeah, the Seattle Kraken, will, you know, we'll wait for that day. Uh, but right now, 31 teams, and they each have 23 roster spots. So at any given moment during a regular season, not counting the injured players, there are 713 active players on NHL rosters. So let's go back to the youth hockey players. We have a million kids dreaming about 700 spots. Like, it's like, you know, that's, that's what it looks like, a pyramid. So the most talented kids make it to the top junior programs. It's a ladder. The, the top juniors go to junior A or college hockey. The best of the best at those levels make it to the lowest professional levels. And any, any given year at Northern, two or three or four, of their players will sign professional contracts to play for the, the teams in the lowest levels of the minors. So they get there and then they do really well and they advance eventually to the top minor league, the top minor league in North America, which is the American Hockey League. And the best of the best from that league, the best of the best from the rest of the world end up in the NHL. So that's, that's the latter. Baseball has one just like it. And the religious training environment that, that surrounded Jesus was similar, had similar levels and uh, ladders. There were similar benchmarks where kids who didn't make the cut were kind of sent home. So the schools for these kids started at around age five. The first one was called the House of Books. And I think I would like to live in a house of books. That's, so that, that, you know, age five, boys and girls would be allowed to go to the House of Books and they would start memorizing the Torah the first, first five books of, of the Old Testament. So that, that would start at age five, and it would go through age 12 or 13. 
memorize the Torah. And then at that point, the top boys in the class would move on to the next house, the next school, and the girls and the other boys would go home and they would learn a trade, typically whatever their family was involved in. So this, this cutoff is age 12 or 13. This next school is called the House of Learning, where the students would start to study the prophets and other writings. And this would last for five or six years until about age 18, where there would be another cutoff. The, t- the top of the top, the best of the best would move on. The rest would go home. So this is about age 18. And if they made the cut at this point, they would be permitted to go out and find a rabbi to learn from. And, and it wasn't just content they were looking for. They would be looking for a rabbi that they wanted to be like. So by this point, they would already be familiar with rabbis in their area, and they would say, I want to be like that person. So they would, they would go. So the, then this final cutoff you know, would happen at about age 30. So from 18 to 30, somebody would be a disciple of a rabbi. And at about age 30, the top of the top of these disciples would get to become rabbis themselves. These are, these are the guys in the NHL. They made it. And the rest would be sent home to learn a trade. So this is the environment Jesus is working in. But there's one more detail I want to address. Those who were interested in studying under a rabbi beginning at about age 18 would essentially have to submit to an interview with that particular rabbi. So if, if I'm a, a wannabe disciple and I am really impressed with Rabbi Christopher, I would have to go to him and he would interview me and see how much I knew. And it was a very selective process. And then finally, if the rabbi decided to accept a student for study, he would offer the invitation by saying, follow me, or come, follow me. That was the key phrase, follow me. This was the formal sign that they were in. This was the official invitation. And notice what Jesus does. Other rabbis would require people to approach them to prove their worth. But Jesus instead goes to these professional fishermen. He goes to this tax collector. People have already washed out of the religious training system, and he invites them. He calls them to himself. He says, come, follow me. He's telling them, I want you to be my disciple. Watch me, learn from me, be with me. I will teach you and then send you out. You don't have to prove that you're worth it. I said earlier that being a disciple of Jesus is different from being a Christian, you can think of it like the difference between um, being in the Navy and being a Navy SEAL. I think, was it Christopher, was that your dream growing up to be a SEAL? Yeah, so Austin Jean, who's, who's not here, like his, like his goal is to become a Navy SEAL. So it's, it's, it's a second decision. It's a second threshold. So you can be in the Navy and then a second decision to be, be in the SEALs. You can be someone who has trusted in Jesus for salvation, and then a second decision, you can be a disciple. So the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. This is the teaching of scripture. And we would say, you are a Christian. You are someone who has trusted in Jesus for salvation. And unfortunately, many Christians stop right there. They stop short 
of what Jesus is really inviting them to, which is an apprenticeship, which is discipleship, which is come be with me, learn from me. I will show you how to live your life. Uh, Going back to Dallas Willard, he, he wrote, it is now generally acknowledged that one can be a professing Christian and a church member in good standing without being a disciple. There is apparently no real connection between being a Christian and being a disciple of Jesus. So we'll have an opportunity in, in five minutes or so to, to talk about this statement. Do we agree with Willard? Is there a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple? Willard says that if I'm a disciple, then I'm learning from him how to lead my life as he would lead it if he were I. I'm learning from him how to lead my life as he would lead it if he were I. If Jesus was literally in your place, living your life as a student at NMU, what would that life look like? That's what Willard is saying discipleship is. So imagine, okay, Jesus is right in your situation. What does that life look like? And discipleship is learning from him how to live that life. So this is the question we have to ask as disciples or people who are considering becoming disciples. Jesus came not only to save us from our sinfulness, but also to show us a better way to live. And if we decide to follow him as his disciple, he will show us how to do it and also through his spirit give us the power to do it. It's the difference between trying to live your life in your own strength and according to your own thoughts on one hand and living your life as you were created to live it. So what's the application? What do we, what, what do, we do with this invitation? I think it's really as simple as this. We treat it like an invitation. So if, if you are invited to a wedding, you, you get the invitation in the mail, and there's an RSVP card, you either say, looking forward to it, I'll see you there, or uh, send my regards. And I think we do the same thing with any invitation that comes from Jesus. We either accept it or reject it. We either say, yes, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I make this decision to be your apprentice, or we say, no, I'd rather not, or I'm not ready for that right now. So I think that Jesus' hope, my hope, is that everyone here would say, yes, Jesus, I want to be your apprentice. I want you to show me how to live this life that you've given me. That's the first step, accepting the invitation. And then the rest of the semester, we'll, we'll talk about what specifically that looks like. Uh, I think next week we're going to be hanging around the idea of disciples spend time with Jesus. And, and Willard talks about apprenticeship with Jesus. That, you know, we think about like a, an, an electrician's apprentice, somebody who wants to be an electrician. They attach themselves to somebody who's done this for a while and learn by being with them. So that's, that's what disciples do as, as well. Disciples spend time with Jesus. Disciples study the life of Jesus. Disciples talk with Jesus. Disciples make other disciples of Jesus. So th- these are some of the things that we'll talk about the rest of the way. But for today, one question. How do you respond to Jesus when he invites you 
to follow him into this life of apprenticeship, into this life of discipleship. He says, come, follow me, and what's our response? So let's pray, and then we'll uh, break into, into groups for you know, five, ten minutes of, of discussion. We can talk about some of these questions. Father, we thank you for pursuing us when we were far from you. We thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us and to show us how to live. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to see the truth and hear, hear the truth. We thank you for the power to live as your instruments of grace and peace and reconciliation in this world. We're honored and humbled by the invitation to be disciples of Jesus. Who We don't have to prove our worth. Jesus comes to us and says, come, follow me. So we ask for the courage and strength to live as faithful and fruitful disciples wherever you send us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.